0: This is a Spirit of Truth Radio Network original program.
1: Hi friends, this is down the hall Dave. I hope you'll stay tuned after the show to listen to the new project I am working on. It's called May I Have a Word, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Death is not an easy subject to discuss. The cold hard fact of the matter is that we're all going to die someday. That's why Thomas Akempis wrote about it, not only in his most famous treatise, The Imitation of Christ, but in his work titled Meditations on Death. Thanks to Tan Books and my guest, such classic books are being translated from the original Latin to English, so that Catholic tradition can be shared with a new generation of Catholics. Joining me along the way to discuss his recently translated book, Meditations on Death, is Father Robert Nixon. Father, Welcome.
0: Thank you, David. It's great to be with you,
1: Father. Can you can you hear me okay? Because I have to say, this is the the longest my voice has reached out. Uh, you're in Australia. This is a, a, a yes. Friday night for me, a Saturday morning for you. It's kind of
0: kind of a yeah. So we're literally on the other side of the world, the antipodes. Um, it's probably freezing over there. It's now about 120 degrees Fahrenheit here at the moment wow uh, in the midst of blazing summer and um yeah but no it's just like talking to you as if you're on the other side of the table right here now.
1: it is it's great this that's the one thing the great thing about technology is that we have a chance to to reach out and to really get to know people all around the world father one of the things that i really want to know is because you're you're a benedictine monk
0: am i correct in calling you a monk yes i am indeed a monk um So uh, part of the Order of Saint Benedict, which is the oldest religious order in the history of the Catholic Church, was founded in about the year uh, 500 by Saint Benedict himself, who began his life as a hermit and quickly developed a reputation for wisdom and sanctity. So other young men were attracted to that same form of life, living separately from mainstream society, contemplating silence and solitude, dedicating their life to God through prayer and and also through through labour in one form or another. And uh, the Benedictine monastic movement then went on to spread um, throughout Europe at a tremendous rate. So uh, our, our golden era in a way was during the Middle Ages. It could almost be called the Benedictine era because it was the dominant force driving Western civilization in those days, and today we continue um, following closely the rule of St. Benedict, praying seven times a day, um, having times of of silence, solitude, trying to live a life of relative simplicity and austerity, and um, we here at New Norcia are the oldest religious community in Australia, Hmm. settled by Spanish monks as a mission to the Indigenous people here, and we have uh, continued ever since and we're still going strongly today as primarily as a place of spiritual retreat for people as well as of course um, where the monastic charism of contemplation and prayer can be lived out and a big part of our monastic spirituality is the culture of study and reading in fact saint benedict sets aside a couple of hours every day for that and during the middle ages one of our big um, monastic industry, so to speak, was scriptoria, where books would be copied out by hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like to think that the work which I'm doing uh, today as a translator of these Latin works is a kind of continuation of the original mission and purpose of those scriptoria, of transmitting books which would otherwise be lost or um, largely forgotten, Mm -hmm. certainly not be accessible to modern readers by making them uh, available. The Modern readers, which um, I'm delighted and honored to be able to do in cooperation with Tan Books.
1: Yeah, I, I want to thank Tan Books for sending me a copy of, of one of the books that you did translate. And we will talk about that a little bit later, because it is something that's that's been kind of on my mind, personally. Father, I want to go back to The Rule of St. Benedict, because I read it. And how can people... Today, modern day people, how can they apply Saint Benedict's rule to their own lives? Even if they're not living in a monastic life, there is some some wisdom to that.
0: You know, uh, I think that one of the very important principles in Saint Benedict's rule is to live one's life um, in an organized and ordered type of way. Now, I realize in a monastery you've actually got a, a strict timetable which you stick to, which ensures that you have. Um, Times of prayer, contemplation, silence, uh, work, uh, sleep as well, of course, and and things like that. But I think for people who aren't living in monasteries, it's a good idea to put together for yourself a a daily timetable, including what's important to you, including prayer, including um, times of silence, including also times of uh, of exercise, of rest of everything, and um, then to stick fairly closely, uh, not inflexibly, of course, but to stick closely to this daily aurarium, because it, it uh, reflects one's priorities. And, you know, um, i uh, often I encounter in this world, people whose lives are kind of too much work, um, prayer gets pushed out, or, you know, too much of any one thing, and it, it leads to other important things being left out. So this idea of balance and sustainability is at the heart of the rule of St. Benedict. And I think that's exactly why the Benedictine order has has flourished for so long, over 1,500 years, because it's it's designed to be a, a sustainable thing. We have monks in our own monastery who've been monks here for almost 70 years and still going strongly. So so it is a, a life of regularity. Um, but out of this regularity, I think a certain strength uh, emerges. I think there should be something of the monastic life in in everyone's um, daily daily routine.
2: Is
1: it an austere lifestyle that you lead as as a Benedictine?
0: Uh, well, you know, this is something which varies from one monastery to another, and you can visit one Benedictine monastery uh, depending upon what part of the world you're in and what the prevailing culture is, and so forth. But in general, if we look at the original rule of Saint Benedict. It's, it's advocating a fairly simple style of life, but uh, by no means one that is harshly austere. So, for example, in the rule of St Benedict, it says everyone should be given you know, um, a, a pound of bread a day, um, yeah, adequate fruit and vegetables, um, half a measure of wine. No one's exactly sure what a measure was, <laughs> but, but the point is, and and he he also allows a reasonable time of, of for sleep as well, which contrasts to some other monastic rules whether. So um he, he the lifestyle he was advocating was more or less comparable to that of a working class Italian in the sixth century. So relatively simple, but not um, so difficult or austere that it was likely to become burdensome or detrimental to one's health. Mm-hmm. So we lead, uh, I'd say, a moderately, A simple life here, but but certainly not one which would um, would be impossible for people to sustain. You know, Um, and and I guess it's fairly. It it was for me when I first joined a monastery. um, It was no great shock, uh, you know, the the type of life which we lead here. So it's it's moderately austere.
1: You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say ora et labora. I mean, whenever somebody, you know, talks about the Benedictines, they always bring that that Latin phrase up. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, how do you take your work and turn it into prayer?
0: Yes, um, well, this is a, is a very important principle. So the idea that all of our work throughout the day should be done with God in mind, with a consciousness that whatever we're doing Uh, is ultimately for the service of God, fellow human beings. But that isn't the end in itself. So if we're engaged in some work, such as uh, conscious of the fact that it in some way is to to include prayers, it's such an important thing, to ask for God's assistance, for his guidance, if something has gone wrong, um, to ask for his help, if something's gone well, to give him thanks, to, to keep this in mind all the time. And in a monastery, it's so easy to do that because we have symbols of our faith um, almost everywhere you look. So the uh, the whole atmosphere is infused with a kind of sanctity, memory of our Benedictine heritage. And as St. Benedict says, um, do everything as if it is done in the sight of God. How often do you reach do you ever mix
1: cross-pollinate or whatever uh, spiritualities as far as, um, you know, your prayer life? Can, can it be directed by Carmelite spirituality? or?
0: Yeah, in, indeed, it, it certainly can. So one thing about the Benedictines is that we are such a broad order that we embrace so many different spiritual approaches. And in fact, a lot of the um, orders which were founded later you know, the Franciscans, the Carmelites, they all looked towards St. Benedict as the original model. So, you know, the the form of prayer, which is prayed by all religious and clergy, the divine office, mm-hmm. was actually largely a Benedictine um, uh, manifestation promoted by St. Gregory the Great, who was probably a nephew of St. Benedict himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for this reason, there is definitely a big relationship between other forms of spirituality so i personally feel a close affinity to the franciscan spirituality in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. Um, but i find that i'm able to um to embrace that within the context of my benedictine life
1: father i'd like to switch gears now and, and really kind of talk to you about your job what you've been doing with tan books in translating these these wonderful masterpieces that we have as Catholics. We have a tremendous history of, of, of great writing, but unfortunately they're getting lost because we don't speak the language anymore. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about
0: what you go through when you're translating these books. Well, you know, um, I uh, I think it's um, it's been a tremendous loss to Western culture on the whole that the Latin language has largely fallen into oblivion. And if we were to go back um, 200 years, the average educated person, not only religious and clergy, but could actually read Latin. So Latin books on science, on medicine and so forth were written in Latin. It was quite a usual thing. And I think um, I would love to see that come back. But in my lifetime, it's probably not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So when I translate a book from Latin, well, the first thing I do is... uh, is I, I read it through and it needs to be something which really uh, touches my heart or strikes me in some way um, because there is such a huge uh, corpus of untranslated literature that, you know, finding the right work to translate is important. Mm-hmm. And um, when something strikes me, then, you know, I, I share it with, uh, with the good people at Ten Books and, you know, um, we'll see if if they feel something which is going to touch the hearts of, of other people. Mm-hmm. And then setting about translating it. So um, the first thing which I would do normally is just translate it more or less literally, um, as directly as possible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes this involves a bit of alteration because... Um, differences in language. So in Latin, it was considered a virtue to use very, very long sentences. Now in English, it's almost the reverse. If you start making your sentences too long, then it's very hard to follow. Mm -hmm. Um, But after having done that, I then think about the tonality of the original author. Was he writing in a kind of colloquial way? Was he writing in a formal way, a polished way, or a conversational way, an anecdotal way? And then I try to translate um, that tonality into the book. And I think that's a very important thing to do. That's something which I certainly try hard to do because it creates, I, I think, it's, it's part of the message. And then there can be other considerations too. So in Latin, um, you often find rhyme. And then to re- replicate that in English can be a bit of a struggle or alliteration and other mm-hmm. devices like those. And then occasionally um, sensibilities change from the ancient world to the Middle Ages to modern times. And sometimes you might find something in the Middle Ages which people were quite uh, content with. I mean it wouldn't have shocked everyone, but if you translate it literally into modern language, then you know that it could quite seem offensive or shocking. So in some cases what I do, is I include the Latin text as a footnote mm-hmm. and then I give a, you know, a modernized um, version of it in English, which will be, uh, you know, comfortable for, for readers because I'm aware that, you know, readers are different ages and so forth and you don't want to include anything which might be, um, which might be shocking or offensive. To them. Sure. Father, yeah.
1: you know, they, they say that it's um, that Latin is a dead language. Is that true?
0: You know, it's not actually true. Um, For a number of reasons, it's still a very important language. Um, Certainly one of the things which I uh, have studied as well and which I delve into is canon law. Now, in canon law, you've got the original, the definitive Latin form. If you ever want to make an argument or to interpret something, it's necessary to look at what the original says because often it has a slightly different nuance than the translation. And uh, then liturgy as well, you know. So we've got the liturgical documents and the Latin form of the rubrics and so forth is the definitive form. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know it's worthwhile consulting these. And then on top of that, of course, there is the work of translation. So it's it's by no means uh, a dead language. And. You know, I I hear constantly, we use, in our own liturgy here, we use uh, Latin. We also use English as well, a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I often hear from young people uh, is their great love of Latin in the liturgy. And I think that's something so important for the church to maintain because it's our our cultural identity. We are the Latin rite Mm -hmm. uh, of of the church. And... You know, we need to keep it there in the same way that, um, you know, the Copts keep the Coptic language, or that um, Muslims use Arabic for the Quran. I mean, it, we need to keep it. It's part of our uh, identity. We can't deny that. And to attempt to deny the Romanness of the Roman Catholic Church is itself a kind of um, cultural subversion. So I think we should be we should be proud of of our uh, Catholic heritage
1: in that regard. You know, it's uh, my good friend Deacon Ben Lacosto said exactly the same thing about how Islam has their language and how, you know, all, all the different religions of the world have their language, we should have ours, and it is Latin. But Father, what I want to ask you is Indeed. when you're translating these, because cool today doesn't mean the same thing that cool meant 75 years ago. Do you have to look at the time period at which this was
0: written to to sort of gauge what it yeah. means? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, and the Latin language actually changed quite a lot from the, the the time of Julius Caesar until you know the time of Aquinas. So there was a lot of evolution involved and slight changes in meaning and so forth. And um, you know, in translating a word from latin into english there can be literally half a dozen possible words you could choose between yeah. so to select the one which recreates the meaning most effectively is something which uh, which i always try to do and um we're lucky that english is a language which is rich in synonyms so there's multiple choices in so many cases yeah um, Father, we, how many books are you translating now, or
1: have you translated for ten books?
0: I have. Uh, so there have been published now um, seven, and I think a few more on their way over the course of the next year.
1: You're working on that many books at one time?
0: Um, I normally I work only on one at a time, and uh, you know uh, because because then I can really concentrate on it and make it, you know, my spiritual reading as well to try to get into the mind and world of the author. Um, Mm. So, yeah, so that's what I do. There's a number of exciting projects coming up um, in the near future, which, uh, which, uh, which is a tremendous thing.
1: Now I I had seen an interview that you had done with, with, uh, I think it was Father Mitch Pacwa and you were talking about the library that you have at your, at your monastery.
0: Yeah. Uh, how many thousands of books do so, you have there? We have we have an amazing library here. Um we have over 80,000 books in our library. And this library has been um it's been collected since the 1840s, which makes it I think one of the oldest libraries in Australia. Hmm. And um we uh, as well as our original books we frequently have donations of books and everything. So as a monastery, um, we, um, we really value being a, a, a storage place for these books. Well, not just a storage place, but a place where people can have access. And I think, considering that our monastic community is quite small at the moment, that we, uh, we're only six months here at the moment, so it's very small, that we have um, per capita an amazingly uh, rich library. And you know, um, one of my great uh, one of my great pleasures is just to spend time, you know, browsing through these books, and there's so much to be discovered. Um, so yeah, we're tremendously blessed to have this uh, fantastic library here at New North.
1: Do you have a book that, that you translated that really made an impact on your life?
0: Um, you know, I think that the very first, book which I translated for 10 was one called "The Crown of the Virgin" by Saint Ildefonsus of well Toledo. And um, I got interested in that book because we have a Saint Ildefonsus College here at our monastery and it's probably the only thing um, named after him in our country. And I was very curious and it was an absolutely amazing book. And when I first translated it, I did it mainly just as a kind of spiritual uh, exercise. And uh, I was very pleasantly surprised that Tan were uh, enthusiastic about it. And that really made me, um, made me conscious of the fact that there are so many Catholics um, who are eager to read these great treasures and uh, you know, felt that it was very much my vocation to, um, to, to, to try to help them uh, realize that desire. You
1: know, Father, with the the shortage of priests in the world, and I think you're doing a real important job because spiritual direction from these saints is just, it's an absolute amazing thing that that you're doing because we can draw from the history of the church. We can draw from these great books. It's really important work that you're doing. Thank you. I'd like to kind of move on to something that's a little nearer and dearer to my heart, uh, this this new book that you have uh, translated for TAN Books, it's a translation of yeah. Thomas Kempis's Meditations on Death. The title's a little yeah. morbid.
0: Tell me why I should read this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is, it is. Um, and, uh, well, one of the things which we actually find in the rule of St. Benedict is he says we should keep death daily before our eyes. And there's a great wisdom in this. Um, So meditating on death is a practice which is important, um, has been important throughout most of the history of Christianity. So it was a a kind of usual thing to do. And saints have recognised this as being such a valuable practice for a number of reasons. Um, Firstly, it makes us conscious of the vanity or the futility of so many things which we worry about in this world. You know, um, things like um, wealth or um, prestige or social status um, and pleasure and things in the context of death makes us realise that they're all merely passing shadow. And it's because in the context of temptations seem very inconsequential, strangely enough, a consolation in times of stress and difficulty. Now, if none of the vanities and uh, things of the world last forever, it's equally true that none of the sufferings and hardships of this world last forever. And um, this, I think, is, is the other side of the coin, which makes consciousness of death a great source of fortitude. Because we realize that whatever we're putting up with, no matter how bad it might seem, it's not going to last forever. What is going to last forever is the eternity which lies beyond the grave. And that is going to be, um, with the grace of God, an eternity of bliss and peace. Unless, of course, we seriously mess things up here. Mm -hmm. Um, So the consciousness of death is a reminder of that. Um, So it's a a wonderful practice, I think, to think uh, of death. There's one more point which... um, which arises from consciousness of death, from frequent meditation upon our mortality. and that's the imperative to seize the day, that our living day is short, that we only have one chance in this life. You know, and um, I often encounter people in a process of vocational discernment, you know and they keep putting off the discernment, and you know I, I think, well, you know, I tell them life is slipping by. Do what God is calling you to do today while, while this day lasts because you don't know how many more you have and um you know as people get older you can look back on your life and you realize that the years seem to flow by at an increasing rate so whatever um god is calling us to do don't put off till tomorrow i think all of these things arise from the meditation of death
1: father can you Can you meditate on death too much? Because to be quite honest with you, since I had my heart attack um, almost two years ago now, there have been, there have been, there's a lot of nights that I'll wake up and wonder why I survived.
0: Uh, Well, could you meditate upon it too much? Uh, You know, I guess, I guess anything can be taken to an extreme at which point, it becomes um, not helpful. And that could include even the most pious things. I mean, even saying the rosary or Eucharistic adoration. I mean, if all of of these things could be taken too far in principle. Um, But, uh, yeah, so I guess it's something, of course, any form of um, exaggerated uh, or obsessive uh, meditation could become a problem. But I, I think for most people, it's probably more likely to be the reverse Um, because I think for a lot of people and for our culture in general, there's subconsciously this fear of death and the response to it is to put it out of our minds altogether to want to uh, draw a cover over it and to speak about it only in euphemisms and or or just medical fact and not to think about its real uh, serious consequences. So I think, um, yes, that it is—it's uh, a useful thing to meditate upon. Uh, I mean, as long as it doesn't become to the point of, of, of a phobia or uh, compulsion.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about some of the meditations that are in this book that that may help?
0: Yeah. So, so the first section of the book deals with what are called the four last things, and the four last things are death itself, final judgment the torments of hell and the joys of heaven. And he describes these things in, in very vivid terms. If I could just share with you uh, a little bit from the first part, mm-hmm. the meditations on death. He says, firstly, so consider firstly the uncertainty of the year, month, day, and hour of your death. Death often arrives with no or little warning, coming like a thief in the night, descending upon us unexpectedly like a falcon swooping upon a hapless dove often it arrives on the occasion you least expect it at the time when you are least prepared for it very often death comes to a person when he still expects to have much longer to live and looks forward to an abundance of time in which to repent for his sins to amend his vices and to approve his life and conduct. then we have the dreadful reality of um, the Uh, final judgment and this is a kind of awesome thing to think about because he points to the uncertainty that no matter how we think we're living whether we think we're virtuous or we think we're sinful that decision uh, is ultimately in the hands of God alone so we we don't know uh, how we're doing until we actually face that final tribunal of judgment and to be ready for it at all times to uh, go to sleep each day with the consciousness that, you know, are we ready to face that tribunal if we don't wake up in the morning? Um, and finally, uh, then we go to the states of heaven and hell. And these are described um, in in absolute um, uh, stunning detail. And if I can share with you a tiny bit from his uh, description of Hell. um so he says each one of the senses which in this earthly life so often are misused and so come to serve as the handmaids and conduits of sin will experience torments in its own particular way thus the vision of each lost soul will be subjected to the sight of grotesque and gruesome demons and scenes of appalling ugliness and horror These will be of such hideousness as to be comparable to the ugliness of the Medusa, of the ancient legends, the mere sight of which was sufficient to turn a human being into stone, and the sense of hearing will be mercilessly disturbed and pained with the discord that groans and agonized screams. Disgusting and nauseating odors of decomposition and death, together with the acrid stench of sulfur, will perpetually plague the nose, the sense of taste will be assaulted without remission by stomach turning concoction of pitch and lead mixed together and then dissolved in vinegar and gore. This will saturate the lips and fill the mouth and throat as an invisible infusion or diabolical brew. Hence, the tormented souls will try to avoid breathing, knowing that to breathe will mean taking in the foul stench and disgusting flavour of the hellish atmosphere. But of course, it is impossible to stop breathing by an act of will. So the damned will be in a state of continual alternation between supplication and disgust from which no rest or respite is possible. And he goes on and it's, it's so uh, vivid and powerful, you know, and I never really read anything like this in um, English literature uh, before in any literature in the English language. And so I felt you know, this is, is a great thing to share with people. Because you know, hell is something which you know preachers, uh, priests in general, don't like talking about very much. But if you think about it, um, it is a very important topic. Um, and similarly, the joys of heaven—that's something we don't often hear a bit too much description of. And of course, we can't desc- we can't imagine them fully or properly. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try because these are our ultimate choices between the bliss of heaven and the endless torments of hell you think dante's descriptions
1: of heaven hell and purgatory are are
0: accurate Uh, you know i i think that they are fairly accurate um insofar as they um broadly match with the other descriptions that we have in other sources um one of the works which i've recently translated is a series of visions by Saint Francis of Rome, who was a, a Roman nun um, who lived about the same time as Dante, mm-hmm. and it's it's amazing how closely her descriptions match with his, you know, and these in turn match with earlier artwork and, and so forth. So I think um, you know, as far as the human imagination is concerned, I think it's it's fair to describe these as as being accurate. With the reservation, of course, that the human imagination is itself a limited thing. So we're bound to what we can comprehend through our senses. And of course, the things uh, in heaven entirely transcend the sense.
1: Please forgive my language, Father. So when we say it's cold as hell, there's a possibility that hell is truly cold.
0: Yeah, yeah. And one of that's one of the things he describes hell as this kind of almost unimaginable mixture of heat and cold so that we feel um, simultaneously the extremity of heat and cold. If I could just um, see if I can find that section. Yes. Um, Consider next the bitterness and extremity of the pains which are suffered there. For the fire which burns so ceaselessly there is incomparably hotter than any flame found here on earth. Indeed, it is said that the fire of hell exceeds the heat of earthly fire to the same extent that our earthly fire is hotter than a mere painted picture of fire. Next, consider the freezing cold which prevails in hell. You might wonder how this coldness can be possible given the omnipresence of the searing flames. But the dire chill of hell is paradoxically felt at the very same time as its scorching fire. It is true that the pain and discomfort caused by this malevolent and diabolical combination of burning heat and bitter gold cannot be imagined by the mortal mind. Perhaps the closest approximation to be found in our earthly realms is the ghastly feeling of those afflicted with virulent and noxious fevers who experience an overwhelming heat and a chilling frigidity at the same time. And hence, they simultaneously sweat profusely while shivering violently wow so it's an amazing thing to imagine isn't it you know um i'm kind of lucky i I don't think i've ever had one of those fevers where you feel hot and cold at the same time but i can kind of imagine what it would be like and yeah
1: i one time i did have uh pneumonia back when i was in the military i had pneumonia and i had one of those fevers where i was sweating and yet i was freezing and I was also hallucinating too. Wow! So I can can you imagine That's, what that must feel like in hell? That would have been
0: a terrifying experience. It, yeah, I was I,
1: I was I was very I was only a kid too. I was only 20, 19 years old eighteen years eighteen years old, and uh, yeah, I was very frightened, especially the you know hallucinations and stuff like that. That was that was very bad.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: So, Father, let's continue on. Tell me some more about this book and, and yeah. why I should read it. Okay. I, I, so, I,
0: yeah, so in the second part of the book, he, um, he then speaks in the person of someone who is just about to die. So he says, um, he, he says, my friend, whenever you are plagued by some difficulty or adversity or tested by some temptation and find your enthusiasm for good works is fading or waning, or divine worship begins to seem tedious and irksome for you, there is a sure and effective remedy. First, sit yourself in a private room, close the door and recollect your mind and your senses to yourself, putting aside all distraction. Then think of the day of your own death. Imagine yourself lying there on your bed in the throes of death, perhaps laboring with some fatal illness and knowing that your earthly life is now very quickly drawing to its last moment. My friend, contemplate the horrendous struggle which you shall sooner or later encounter. Imagine yourself upon the very point of death about to cross that irremediable threshold into the world to come. This is an event which may not in any way be escaped whatsoever, not by anyone. It is the one certainty of our human life. And for all you know, it may well be today that the final bell tolls for you. And then goes into... Um, imagining what you're going to be thinking and feeling at the time of your death. And uh, this is almost about half the book. And this person who is confronting the realities of death, and he has all kinds of visions. So death appears to him um, in a figure almost like the grim reaper and speaks to him. Um, And I hear the grim voice of death calling to me, sinister, thunderous, and with a hollow, you are mine now. Neither your wealth, nor your honours, nor your a fiend is death, how merciless, and cold, and inexorable. That upon hearing this death, robed in black, and with a sickle in his pallid, emaciated hand, retorts, Enough of this empty nonsense. Your words cannot help you now, one iota. Neither your sighs, nor your lamentations, nor your weeping, nor your wailing, can gain for you any remission. For soon you shall enter into my kingdom, the dreadful realm of shadows and eternal night." And there you will behold and experience such horrors, such bone-chilling abominations as no human eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, nor the mind of any mortal, even in the state of the most fevered nightmare and mad delirium has ever imagined. And so it continues with this very amazing description. And, you know, one of my favourite writers when I was a young child growing up was Edgar Allan Poe. And when I was... When I was translating this, um, you know, so much of the uh, language and and tone of his writing, um, I found, you know, w- w- was exhibited in this late medieval work. Hmm. Um, so was it kind of, in a way, it was a, a pleasure to to translate, to to be able to um, to, to to write in this uh, in this style, which has a appeal to the imagination, I think as well as being a powerful reminder to keep things in their proper context you know and often we minimize our fear of death by calling it something like you know a falling asleep or um but in reality for anyone who ever has ever been close to death either through sickness or through through a, a serious injury or whatever you know it's it's nothing um, it's not just a gentle falling asleep or you know right. walking out of uh, one room into another this is actually a very serious thing and even for souls which are uh, entirely righteous um according to to our consistently according to tradition they're plagued by demons towards the last moments of their life and once the soul leaves the body and so it's accompanied by saint michael the archangel and so forth, but, you know, it's, it's not for nothing that we say in the Hail Mary, pray for us now and at the hour of our death, because this is such a critical moment. Mm-hmm. One of the points he makes is that we can't be sure of the state of our soul, that deathbed repentance, while it might be effective, we have no way of knowing, because not even the person who's repenting can really be sure how sincere they are, because if they recover, would they amend their life? They don't have the chance of doing that. There's no opportunity for penance and so forth. And then there's stories of of saints or very holy people who, in the final throes of death, suddenly find themselves filled with with doubts and misgivings. And, you know, so um, one of the things he points out is you, you don't want to leave it till you're in an infirm state of body and mind to try to get your spiritual life in order because you need your full strength to do that.
1: Father, I often have said it on this show many times. I'm a simple man with a simple theology. uh, And it's one that's based in divine mercy. Um, How much do you think divine mercy can carry us across that threshold?
0: Well, you know, divine mercy um, is, is infinite in its capacity. Um, But, One of the mysterious things about God is he's infinitely merciful, but he's also infinitely just. So there's divine justice as well. And in our our human minds, we tend to make a dichotomy between justice and mercy. Um, Whereas with God, in reality, both things are one. Mm. So it's a a very mysterious thing. And uh, ultimately, the mercy of God can only reach a soul that sincerely wants to embrace that mercy. And how do we know if we sincerely want to embrace? We can't simultaneously be clinging to evil and wanting that mercy at the same time. It's a bit like a person saying, I'm going to apologize for something, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm apologizing for.
2: Yeah. You
0: know. So how sincere can that apology be? And this is something which we don't even know ourselves how sincere our repentance is, you know? And to repent when we're no longer capable of committing a certain sin, you know, we it, it might be sincere or it might not be. Only God knows. Not even the person concerned can know for absolute certainty. Hmm. So the next part of the book, he considers um, various things. He considers the... He has a lament, lament over the time which he has wasted in his life. And I think that this is such an important thing. What I mentioned before about this uh, kind of carpe diem, seize the day which we're called to by our mindfulness of death, and to think, well, you know, is there a good work which we want to do in our life which we haven't done yet? Do we have a good intention? Do we have something which we want to correct? Don't put it off till tomorrow. Um, one of the things written is that tomorrow is the devil's favorite word you know but god is today so you know let's let's do things while we have the opportunity um he has then regrets concerning the deferral of repentance the uncertainty of last minute repentance and the unreliability of human assistance at the hour of death and i think this is so important people tend to imagine that you know when when they're approaching death, there's going to be you know, lots of people around to help them, to comfort them, and so forth. But ultimately, it's a isolating experience because you're leaving the the world of human society. So there will soon be a, a bridge which it's impossible to cross. And you know, I think that comes through in the events leading up to uh, death. And he speaks about that. Um, oh how deceitful are the crowds of so-called friends which congregate around the dying how deceptive are the honeyed word of physicians for they all promised good things to me and all confidently assured me of my recovery there is absolutely nothing to fear they told me and you are in no peril at all no need to rush to make your confession to a priest this malady is nothing but a temporary ailment and a minor vexation of the nerve which will cure itself in due course simply rest and take things easy and put all anxiety from your mind, for this infirmity of yours will soon pass. Oh, my false friends, or rather true enemies, by following your guidance and counsel and not admitting the reality of my impending death, I was defrauded of the opportunity of timely repentance and reconciliation. How I regret paying heed to your consoling but misleading assurances. And now the hour of my final dissolution approaches and my mortal life ebbs to its termination. My vision fails, my skin grows pale. My hair is grey, life ebbs away. My spirits leave me, hopes deceive me. This day's my last, my time has passed. Wow. Another very striking thing, he says, my friends, listen to me now carefully, I implore you. Know that at this moment I would rejoice more for one of you to say a single Hail Mary for the salvation of my poor soul. Than I would to receive an infinite treasure of gold and silver or to be granted sovereignty over all the kingdoms of the earth. I think this is such an amazing thing to think about that that in the end, all wealth held on is going to seem as nothing. we would give it all away just for a single Hail Mary, for the salvation of our soul. When I read that, it was also a reminder to me to pray for people I've known who've passed from this world because you know the efficacy of prayer for the dead is part of our uh, catholic tradition mm-hmm. and um you know we we don't know who needs prayers after they've passed away um probably most people are going to spend at least a bit of time in purgatory to purify the soul and um in a, a miraculous way the prayers which we offer for them now help in that work of purification so it's very important that in the mass each mass we, we pray for the dead and i think that we can do that also at many times throughout the day whatever someone who's passed away comes to mind to say for them uh quick ave maria and to know that it's it's doing great things for them wherever they might be
1: one thing that i do as i'm watching my the morning news drinking my morning coffee i i will if if there's a someone that was reported dead, I, I'll I'll say a prayer for him. But one thing I like to do is to pray over the obituaries in the newspaper um, to pray for those people. Yes. So just something that I do, something I hope maybe somebody else will consider doing too, because you never know who needs the prayers.
0: In, indeed, indeed, that, that's a very that's a very commendable thing to do, you know, and especially for for people who you don't know personally, I think, because when a, when a stranger does something for you, it's a beautiful thing. And I think particularly when it's, when it's prayer.
1: I don't know how it is in Australia, Father, but here in, in the United States, especially here in the Northeast, uh, you, you'll be driving down the highway and you'll see a cross off to the side. And that's sort of a roadside memorial of where someone has died. That's another great place to just maybe uh, say a Hail Mary or or, or an Our Father. yeah. Uh, in-
0: it, it is, and, and we find that in Australia too, you know. And, um, and I think seeing those crosses is not only a reminder of the person who's passed away, but it's a reminder of the salvation uh, which comes through the cross, through its victory over final death. Although we face death as the ending of this life, it's not the eternal death. It's only a kind of um, temporal death, the end of our temporal lives. And it's quite amazing, you know, um, the most recent um, surveys in Australia have shown that I think it's it's no longer a majority of people who identify as Christians, which is very sad. sad. But at the same time, when we have memorials of, of death, um, then the cross suddenly takes on a great prominence. And even people who might say that they're atheists or agnostics or whatever, when They've confronted with eternity. Um, you know that there is that hope. Um, I think that underlying faith, even if they might survive to 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 deny it, you know, when it comes down to the final moments, uh, I don't think anyone in their right mind would would deny what lies beyond.
1: Well, they say there's no atheists in a foxhole, Father. <laughs>
0: Exactly, exactly, very much so, know. you know, and, uh, you know, and if we consider, if we think about our mortal life here, which is so short and limited and uncertain, um, you know, I, I'm surprised that any any sane person would want to declare themselves an atheist because if for no other reason, um, they can't actually be sure of what they're saying and, you know, I would rather believe in God and then find out that I was wrong after the grave than not believe in God and find out that I was wrong after the grave.
1: <laughs> Head your bets, Father. Yeah. Head your bets. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: Father, you know, Thomas Akempis wrote this book that you translated, and we all know that he wrote The Imitation of Christ as well. Do you think this book, was yeah. Meditations on Death, was written after that um imitation of Christ
0: well um one of the chapters in the imitation of Christ is called on meditation of death and oh. it recommends meditating on death okay. and you know he doesn't go into, he doesn't go into too much detail but says it's a useful practice and something which everyone should do every day mm-hmm. so I think that this kind of fills in the uh the gap of what is not actually spelt out in the imitation of Christ Now, my own uh, theory about The Imitation of Christ is it was written over a period, a long period of time, and then put together. It's it's written as four separate books. So I think that probably when he was writing the chapter in that book on meditations of death, Mm -hmm. he would have written this other book as well to provide the content, because someone said, well, you recommend meditating on death. How do I do that? And this book answers this in, in a wonderful way. So this book, in fact, can be read, um, you know, over the course of, um, of a few days of retreat. And it, it's you can take this book, um, read it, and it will change your life forever. So uh, about the same time when he was writing The Imitation of Christ to be uh, over 90, which in the 15th century, um, and hmm. uh, copied the Bible by hand about four times, copied all the works of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Augustine and so forth, all by hand, and he was writing all throughout his life. So most people only know the imitation of Christ, but in fact, um, his complete works are very, very extensive. Hmm. And uh, this is one one of those books which um, some of them have been translated. I've got another one called Humility by Thomas Akempis, uh, published by Tent another one coming out um in the not too distant future called on solitude and silence by him as well and uh and this one is very much uh, in the the same genre but i think a, a different reading experience to the imitation of christ um this is is a book i think which will which will really draw in the reader uh, powerfully it's um, Beautiful. you know uh, it's a life changing book
1: Beautiful, Father. Uh, is there anything I'm I'm missing? Is there anything you want to before we wrap this up? Do you? Is there anything you want to leave us with? Well,
0: you know this this book actually finishes with with a few um, of the uh, Canticles to Heaven, and in these, um, Thomas a. Kempis describes the joys of heaven, and um, this leads it leads to a kind of triumphant, to a happy ending to a book which which otherwise might be a, a little bit uh, dark, but uh, he, he talks about this uh, in, in very wonderful language. And I, if I could just read a little bit next. Please do. Um, o star-girt realm of bliss supreme, be thou our hope, be thou our dream. In thy vast halls, O city blessed, is untold peace, high heavens rest. There shines pure light ineffably, and souls exalt forever free. To God alone be homage paid, whose wondrous love such things have made. Beautiful. So, yeah. So, uh, thanks so much for the opportunity of, uh, of speaking to you today, David, and, and of sharing this wonderful work by Thomas Akempis uh, with your listeners. Oh, I,
1: I hope that they will visit Tan Books' website and uh, I this book up along with some of the other books that you've, you've been, you've been translating because like I said in, in, earlier, we have such a rich history as Catholics. We can reach back through history and we can, you know, we can get the wisdom and thank you so much father for, for coming here and joining me along the way and, and, and for taking the time to do these, the, the, these classic books. And, and thank you again to tan books for, for uh, believing in this project again, continuing the, the the Catholic wisdom and truth and beauty uh, uh, through these books. Father, thank you so much. Would thank you,
0: you so much, David. God bless you. God bless you. Would you give us a blessing before we leave? Through the intercession of the most blessed Virgin Mary and our Holy Father, St. Benedict, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you always amen
1: so for my guest father robert nixon order of saint benedict Benedictine priest my producer david imhoff i'm down the hall dave always praying that your troubles be less your blessings be more and nothing but happiness come through your door see you next time Friends, thank you for staying. I'm really excited to share this project with you. Let me begin by asking you a question. What was the most life-changing advice you have ever received? Do you remember why someone shared that message with you? What were your circumstances? If that advice made a difference in your life, do you think it could make a change in someone else's? May I have a word? about giving. Giving advice worth considering. Now, Eddie Trask, and know your role.
2: So in high school, my senior year, varsity team basketball, my coach made it very clear. I think he was upset at the time, but he made it very clear to me that I should know my role. What I would do is, well, first of all, I was called to be a sharpshooter, three-pointers, camped out on the three-point line, somewhere on the three-point line. And the point guard's job was to drive, draw the defense to him, kick it to me, or pass it to the post. The post takes a few seconds to survey the situation, draw a few defenders to himself, pass it out to me, and I should be ready to shoot it. That was my role. But instead, a lot of times I would pump fake, and rather than pass it, I would try to drive. And oftentimes, when I would drive, it wouldn't work out too well. So my coach would say, know your role, Trask, know your role. And so all my friends started to say that to me, know your role, Trask. So uh, anyway, that it was difficult at the time to accept that in humility. And I, it, I don't even know how long it took me to accept that. But once I did, that's when I played my best basketball. And so that phrase, know your role, has carried through my life in work, At church, at home, know your role, Trask. So the point is, whatever that is, especially those that are trying to be devout, know what the Lord's will is. Be secure in your role. Don't worry about what other people's roles are. Don't worry about the guys that are able to drive to the basket, so to speak, or those that can shoot jump shots from 16 feet up. Just know your role and everything else will fall into place.
1: If you'd like to see these videos, go to YouTube at May I Have a Word.